Hello there, it's Peter Bergman, and this is Radio Friaz Oz in your ears for Friday, February 24th, 2012. Got a special treat for you today. I interviewed Mark Kaufman, editor of the Washington Post, or I should say former editor of the Washington Post because he's now gone full-time into science writing, and uh, his book, Contact, Scientific Breakthroughs in the Hunt for Life Beyond Earth, fascinated me and I thought I ought to talk to him about it. It's not just life beyond Earth, it's life on this Earth that's living in extreme conditions. Extremophiles. I love extremophiles. Uh, Mark's book is uh, published by uh, Simon & Schuster. I don't know if it's available in paperback. I think it did just come out in paperback. It's a good book. It's a nice, easy read about some far-out subjects. Now, this interview is by Skype. First time for me, and I failed to tell Mark to put some earphones on, so there's a little slap back, but it's worth it. I think you'll agree. So, here's Mark Kaufman. Hi, this is Peter Bergman. I have Mark Kaufman at the other end of the Skype. He's a science writer for Washington Post, the editor, excuse me, the author of First Contact, the book that got me so excited about this whole area, writing a new book himself. Glad to have you on Radio Free Oz, Mark. Delighted to be here. As I mentioned when we were talking just a bit before, one of the things that, that really kind of stoked me about this book was that Paul Butler, one of your exoplanets or whatever, uh, mentioned that, uh, what did he say exactly? He said the every, he talked about the everything you know is wrong phase of extrasolar planet research. Well, and then you mentioned the Firesign Theater. So I said, this man is cool. I got to talk to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, well, uh, uh, Paul Butler is, is one of the great planet hunters uh, in, in the world and, and is responsible for identifying a like half or so of the extrasolar planets that have been identified or were before the Kepler mission really got going. And he's been doing it for, you know, 30 years or so, and that makes you pretty eccentric, you know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it does. You go to some odd, lonely places too, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, his, his favorite uh, haunts are, are, are near Coonabarabran in, uh, in Australia, where he goes to the Anglo-Australian observatory and uh, just watches, you know, night after night after night. And uh, it, it, it's not so much that he's looking for the planets, but he's, he's, he uses the uh, telescope to then get the data, which allows him to know that there are extrasolar planets out there. I got you way out there in the outback, as they say, East <laughs> Minsky Pinsk. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I found fascinating about your book, of course, I'm interested in SETI. And extra, you know, extra planets, but it's the work being done here on the Earth to find uh, forms of life that live under extreme conditions that might make us able to extrapolate that they could live somewhere else in the universe. You call them extremophiles, and I find the people that are doing it and the areas that they're digging around very exciting. Uh, let, let's start with uh, Gateman. Um, I hope I get this correct. Uh, Borgony, is that correct? Gaetan. 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 Yeah, although yeah. those Belgians, what can I say? Yes, now, yes. now, he's at the bottom of a platinum mine in South Africa, right? Right. He uh, he was following in the footsteps of, of Tullus Onstadt, who is a uh, a professor and, and great extremophile pioneer uh, at Princeton. But uh, Tullus began maybe 15 years ago going down into these mines, which are the deepest cuts into the surface of the earth that there are. Uh, nothing is deeper. And, and Tullus had the idea that, uh, uh, that there had to be some form of, 
of life down at that level, um, which went entirely against all of the conventional thinking at the time. Um, he got no grants, you know, NSF, nobody would give him any money. Did it, on his, did it on his own dime, went down there, spent a number of years working with some South Africans also, and found um, microbes down there that were, uh, that had not had any interaction with the surface of the earth for millions of years. Millions of years. Millions of years. Uh, and then uh, Gaetan, who is a, a, a nematodologist, a, a specialist in roundworms, he knows that these are very, very tenacious little worms, much more complicated than a single microbe, you know, uh, thousands of cells. And so he, you know, with the help of Tullus, went down into one of these, uh, several of these mines as well, uh, took water from some of these boreholes and where the water's coming out at, you know, 160 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, then he filters it and sees and wants to see what's there. And he found living nematodes, worms from hell. Worms from hell, I'm telling you. That's there's a book, at least a chapter. Absolutely. <laughs> so you got him down in the mines, okay? And then you've got, uh, and this is only one name, I'm sure, of, of of the team, Brent Christner, right? The team that's chainsawing forty feet into glaciers and pulling right. out these huge blocks of ice, like the in the movie The Day After Tomorrow, I think it was. Yes. Yeah, they pull in these big cores, they open it up. And what do they find? More microbes, right? Yeah. Who knew? I mean, it turns out that Antarctica, which, you know, which was understood, again, conventionally to be totally lifeless, except for, you know, marine mammals maybe underneath some of it. But it, it turns out that in the ice, there is microbial life uh, going down, again, miles into glaciers and, uh, and just about everywhere that they look. Uh, it turns out that the way that ice crystals form, uh, it results in a little kind of rivulet of water that surrounds the basic crystal. And in that little rivulet, everything that isn't frozen H2O gets pushed out. And, and that means all the salts and nutrients and stuff that uh, a microbe would need. And so that's where they live in these little, these little rivulets inside the ice. It's uh, unbelievable. Their, their metabolism must be really low. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty sleepy most of the time. Yes. If they reproduce every hundred years, then they're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I welcome that. And, and to that icy metaphor, uh, you just wrote an article that came out in the Washington Post about the Russians who ha it seems to be ready to pierce Lake Vostok. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, and and actually, they made the announcement uh, two days ago that, or yesterday actually, that that they had made it. Uh, Lake Vostok. This is again to me utterly fascinating. It's it's the third or fourth uh, largest lake uh, on Earth in terms of volume of water. And until fifteen or so years ago, nobody knew it was there. It, it's underneath uh, two point two miles of ice. Uh, in, in the middle of Antarctica, and the Russians had been drilling there, uh, just getting ice cores going back to the 50s or so, and it was only in the 90s, uh, mid-90s, that largely the U.S. and others, through uh, satellite uh, imagery, located this huge lake under it, uh, under where they were, where they were digging, uh, drilling. And so since then, they've been doing this on and off drilling, and just uh, over this past weekend, they finally made it down. This is, 
in the world of astrobiology, of you know, trying to find uh, how we can understand life beyond Earth, this is like the perfect parallel of Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, which have these thick crusts of ice, and then we know they have oceans underneath it. And so if, if we could find, if they can find, the researchers can find uh, living organisms in the water of Lake Vostok, and, and there are something like 200 other lakes, but if they could find microbial life there, then there's really, it's kind of a, a proof of concept, you know, that, 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 that the exact same thing could be true in, uh, in these moons or other planets outside of our solar system. What I find really attractive is that rather than looking for extraterrestrial sentient beings, which is an interesting area, of course, we're actually starting at the microbial level, you know, because first of all, we have to look for the extreme conditions in which life can exist, all right? Before we start expecting people to start sending us pi to 14 figures. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's been part of the revolution of the last 15 years or so in astrobiology that, you know, the understanding that... If I could just make a, a, a brief uh, turn back, uh, when the Viking mission went to Mars in the mid-70s, Carl Sagan, you know, the, the uh, illustrious Carl Sagan, was talking about how they might see things floating, you know, living things floating in front of them. It, it, there was that kind of concept in terms of what life might be on Mars or elsewhere. Well, you know, they didn't find anything like that, and they didn't find anything that seemed to be lifelike. But now, you know, low these 50 years later, uh, they're, they're going at it in a way that has far more uh, likelihood or possibility of, of getting some positive results because they're looking for the microbes. And the microbes are most likely what an awful lot of life is in the solar, in our solar system, but also in the other galaxies, in, in our galaxy and others, uh, other, on other extrasolar planets. And I'm sure that they're may well be other planets that got lucky where the microbes had an opportunity to evolve, that there were the conditions for that. And so who knows, maybe there's a Peter Bergman out there too, you know, in some distant planet. Another issue. Now we get to, excuse the, the sexist overtone, the pinup of extremophiles, <laughs> all right? Felicia Wolf-Simon. And right, right. I love the fact, I'll tell it, but I learned it from your book. This is a scientist that believed that there were non-carbon oxygen-based Forms, things that could live on other other material than we understand. And she went to the scientific convention, and she was, what, punked out, pink hair, and, you know, with studs or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. And how could they take her seriously? Here she is with this out-to-lunch theory, looking like, you know, someone out of the clash. She was looking at Mono Lake in California, uh, which is a terminal lake, which means that a lot of stuff comes into it and it doesn't then leave. It just evaporates off. But it, you have very heavy concentrations of, of a number of elements, including arsenic. Arsenic, you know, obviously kills most things. But there, uh, there, were, there was bacteria, microbes that thrived on the arsenic. Well, it turns out that arsenic is very close on, on, uh, in the, on the elemental table, the table of elements, to phosphorus, which is indeed in everything that's alive. There's phosphorization. Without it, I ain't got no energy, right? You got you bet. You bet. So everything that you know that we know has carbon, has oxygen, has hydrogen, has has uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, and maybe sulfur. What she found was that by pushing the envelope in terms of these microbes, 
she was able to bring to life microbes that had no phosphorus in them, uh, which again, from her point of view, was a proof of concept that you could that there that if she could push it that far in a, on her lab, then there's no reason to think that it wouldn't also exist in Mono Lake and other places like it. Yeah, I, I, like, I like to call it arsenic and new race. <laughs> yes, uh, she's got a torrent of criticism for it, great deal of pushback, but it was it was peer-reviewed, it, it was in science, uh, it was a, you know, a lead article in science, NASA made a big deal about it. It may or may not end up being true, but I have to say that you know a year and change later, nobody has proven her wrong. She put all the data, she put her samples out there, and so anyone can, can you know, see whether or not these are in fact microbes without phosphorus, um, and nobody has printed an article saying, gee, I found that, there was, that this was bogus. Let's go on to the wonderful world of panspermia. Okay, okay. here we go. We're talking here about the Murchison meteor, meteorite, this big hunk of, of, of rock that landed in Australia, and I'll tell you why, because there's not a parking problem in Australia. These meteorites don't land in Manhattan <laughs> and in Beverly Hills. There's no place to go. So it lands in Australia, and they find that it contains this large rock, amino acids, carbon compounds, and nucleobases. So what, what does this mean to science? What all that says is that uh, this, this meteorite, which had been you know, floating around in space for God knows how long, it, at some point, uh, it, ha it, it was able to form these, com these complex compounds out of other simple things that are out there in, in space. Again, one of the great revolutions of the last 15 years is the understanding that everything that's needed for life is out there all over in space. You know, the, the complex carbons, uh, hydrogen, the whatever, uh, it's all out there. And the, the Murchison was a, a, a proof that you also, that you even got amino acids and nucleobases, which are the building blocks of life. They're not life itself, but they're what create, uh, what's used to create proteins and also what's used to create uh, DNA. Mark, let me ask you this. Go ahead. Is the, yeah. un is the understanding that the amino acids and nucleobases and carbon compounds were from the original place from which this piece of rock broke off? The, the idea is not that these, these were formed while it was floating in space, or am I wrong? I believe that, that, that there is a theory that says that that some of it is a kind of a photovoltaic kind of response, and that, uh, that, that some of the chemistry involves the, the kinds of radiation, the kinds of light that hit the rock as it was moving. Uh, but there's also a, you know, a lot of thought that, this, that these things could have been on, on some earlier, larger pieces of, of rock and then broke off and came here. But it, it may also have formed that way. That's fascinating. Um, I mean, we don't know. We'll, we'll find out someday. You know? Well, right. And, and in terms of the panspermia, this, I, you know, when I first heard about this, I was thinking, well, you know, this, this sounds like, uh, you know, a, a theory that will be never proven. But uh, the more I think about it, the more it makes total sense. It, it, it refers specifically to the, uh, the, the theory that not only amino acids and nucleobases, but actual life came to Earth from somewhere else. And as it, as it turns out, we now know, and this is something that has been very well uh, confirmed, that Mars, baby back, you know, three and a half, four billion years ago, was a far more habitable place than Earth. 
and it was wet and it was warm. And so there's a real, there's a possibility that life began on Mars. Conditions there gradually got bad. And so now it's, you know, very desiccated and very cold. But there's nothing to say that a, you know, a meteorite or asteroid might not have hit Mars long ago, kicked up something that had uh, microbes in it that floated around in space for a while. And we know that it can survive uh, and then land on Earth and colonize Earth, which would, of course, make all of us Martians. Mark has a book coming out soon. Can't tell you the title because I don't know. It's kind of on this publisher's embargo thing. Anyway, we'll be talking with him again. This is Peter Bergman, Radio Free Oz, Oz in your ears. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Catch you again on...